Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, government-supplied food assistance has been around in various forms since at least the Great Depression, but never with the straightforward goal of easing hunger. 1930s posters about food stamps declare, We are helping the farmers of America move surplus foods. And that link between agriculture industry supports and nutrition assistance continues to this day, which partly explains why the primary food aid program, SNAP, while the constant target of the anti-poor, racist, drowned government-in-the-bathtub crowd, keeps on keeping on. We'll talk with the author of a new book on that history called Why SNAP Works. Christopher Basso is professor of public policy and politics at Northeastern University. Also on the show, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911, in which 146 mainly immigrant women and girls died, many leaping from windows to escape the flames, horrified New Yorkers and galvanized the workers' rights movement. The October 11th unveiling of a monument to those who did not just die but were killed that day, put many in mind of how much still needs to change before we can think of things like triangle shirtwaist as relics of a crueler past. In 2015, Counterspin spoke with Barbara Briggs of the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights about Rana Plaza, the 2013 catastrophe that killed more than a 1,000 workers in Bangladesh in circumstances that, in some ways, echoed those of 100 years earlier. We'll hear that interview again today. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. With the naming of Fifth Commissioner Anna Gomez, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel now has the votes needed to restore the agency's authority to act on issues affecting Internet users, a.k.a. pretty much everybody. That's what enables the FCC to track service outages, to rein in abuses, and yes, to help make broadband, now widely recognized as essential infrastructure, more accessible and affordable for everyone. But profiteers want a profit, and as the group Free Press is tracking, Industries coin-operated sock puppets are cranking up their Title II myth machine. Here is some language Free Press suggests we look out for. Title II is heavy-handed internet regulation. Okay, well, despite what phone and cable companies claim, Title II authority is not a regulation of the internet itself. It gives the FCC oversight of monopoly-minded broadband providers, those ISPs, Free Press says, don't represent the Internet any more than lumber companies represent the forest. Another myth is that Title II rules are a solution in search of a problem. This is actually the most prolific talking point of the anti-net neutrality set. Their claim is that ISPs would never, ever throttle content that they don't like or prioritize websites and services that they do like. That's just false. In the last 20 years, providers both in the U.S. and abroad have violated net neutrality, 
And while some now claim that they've changed their practices, they're also talking about how new business models will just kind of force them to implement pay-to-play in a way that is going to violate open internet principles. Remember when wireless services of AT&T and Sprint and Verizon blocked access to Google Wallet? It was a mobile payment system that was going to compete with a service that all of those three companies had a stake in developing. There's a heart-tugging myth also that the Biden FCC should be focusing on real problems, such as obstacles to broadband deployment and accessibility. Except the largest obstacles to deployment and accessibility are the ISPs themselves. At the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, as people came to rely more heavily on broadband access for healthcare, remote schooling, and so on, there were widespread reports of companies shutting off connections, leaving many people without access. Reclassifying broadband access as a Title II service will simply allow the FCC to require that ISPs address such internet outages and support agency efforts to ensure that we have resilient networks that are capable of withstanding and recovering from disasters. It also gives the agency a path to prevent ISPs from interfering with emergency communications, as when Verizon throttled a fire department's allegedly unlimited data during 2018's deadly California wildfires. There is an enduring myth that the FCC's Obama-era open internet order hampered capital investments, which we're to understand would have spurred new broadband deployment and innovation. Well, you can look, as Free Press suggests, at freely available SEC data on broadband capital expenditures before, during, and after the two-year period that Title II oversight was in effect. And if you do, you'll see that net neutrality and Title II were very successful. Capital investments by publicly traded ISPs were 5% higher following the 2015 open internet vote when compared to the two years prior to the adoption of those rules. And ISPs continued to enjoy revenue and profit growth in the two years following Title II reclassification. And finally, there's a tired myth that net neutrality is a hyper-partisan, politicized issue. University of Maryland polling in 2022 showed that majorities of voters from all parties support reinstating the FCC's power to protect Internet users. 72% of all of those surveyed favor reinstating net neutrality regulations, That's 65% of Republicans, 82% of Democrats, and 67% of independents. The overwhelming and ongoing cross-partisan support is why millions of people from all 50 states are calling on the FCC to enforce Title II oversight, which, Free Press points out, breaks all prior records for public participation in agency rulemaking. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Listeners may remember the images from the spring of 2020, farmers dumping milk, smashing eggs and plowing produce under, even as people were lining up at food pantries. Counterspin spoke with scientist Ricardo Salvador, who explained that it wasn't 
perversity so much as a result of the structure of our systems of food production and distribution that don't work exactly the way we might think. While more complex than it first appears, that imagery still reflects a difficult reality, the paradox of want amidst plenty that is at the core of our next guest's new book. The book is called Why Snap Works, a political history and defense of the food stamp program. It's out now from University of California Press. We're joined by author Christopher Basso, professor of public policy and politics at Northeastern University. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Christopher Basso. Glad to be here. Well, the reauthorization for the 2023 Farm Bill is underway. And every time the Farm Bill comes up, folks are puzzled to see that SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, is in there alongside agricultural research and forestry, you know. But this situation, this marriage, as you put it, has been central from the beginning. Yeah, and in two ways. First is the conceptual origins of SNAP, food stamps, the sort of why they started in the first place. And that is lies at the very intersection that you spoke about, this intersection of want amidst plenty back in the Depression. And in fact, the original food stamp program was essentially a program designed to get rid of crop surpluses, or in some cases, animal surpluses, Mm -hmm. as much as anything else. I mean, it really was designed initially that you would get for every dollar in orange stamps you bought, if you were qualified to do so, you would get 50 cents in free blue stamps. And those blue stamps could be used at any retailer to buy any food declared in surplus by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, this is during the Depression. Now, when they're brought back later on in the 1960s, that's not as center, but it's to boost food consumption for low-income households. But then the politics of it takes over, that you still have SNAP, food stamps, and then SNAP in the farm bill, first informally and now formally since the 1970s, to seal that deal between essentially the, you know, the sort of conservative rural representatives who otherwise might not support what they might see as welfare mm-hmm. for you know, low-income residents, and for urban legislators who would not otherwise vote for commodity program supports. So that sort of deal has been locked in since the 1970s and lies at the heart of the Farm Bill Coalition. And especially for Democrats, that's sort of their only reason that most Democrats would vote for the Farm Bill. Not the only, but the primary reason. To be clear, not being designed specifically as an anti-poverty program doesn't mean that SNAP hasn't had anti-poverty effects. But I just want to draw you out on the linking of it to farmer support, to commodity support. Sure. You've, you've just indicated this. It's shielded it politically for years. So even though that we know that these programs have been attacked, we see them being attacked all the time, Mm -hmm. they still survive in some shape or form. They do. And in part because, and this is sort of the part that, you know, a lot of people don't want to really talk about is that it's essentially before the pandemic, and it was a $60 billion a year subsidy to the food system. That's what it is. I mean, you're basically priming low-income Americans to buy more food. And that's $60 billion. It's more now since the pandemic had doubled, and now it's coming back down again, but still pretty significant. I haven't looked at the latest numbers. But in the end of the day, it's as much a subsidy to Walmart as it is to low-income Americans in a perverse sense. Right. It's interesting. It's kind of a hidden aspect in terms of the coverage. The coverage might be the farm aspects on one page and then on another page a story about SNAP, but it's not connected in the way that the policy itself is connected. That's correct. Well, while the linking with agricultural policy has allowed 
SNAP to survive multiple efforts to gut it, all of that politicking, and you indicated in the book, it's, it has interfered. It has led to things like work requirements, mm-hmm. for instance, situations where, as you put it, the programmatically suboptimal is the politically necessary. And you ask what I think is often an overlooked question, which is compared to what? Because for sure, this book is not saying that SNAP is perfect, and it's not saying even more deeply that SNAP would necessarily have a place in a, in a truly healthy, just society. But it's what else? What else are we going to do? I guess my what else is the sort of political reality part of, of me. Given our strong anti-welfare ethos in this country, at least at the abstract level, most of our social welfare system is sort of in-kind support, not cash. I'm going to ask you finally about media. The Wall Street Journal, we were talking about work requirements. The Wall Street Journal complained this past May that veterans and the homeless were being exempted from work requirements for food vouchers because they said, quote, these Americans could perhaps most benefit from the dignity and stability of work. Okay, close quote. Um, News media have often played a fairly inglorious role, um, punching down with the sensational shaming stories about people buying lobster with EBT. And and then also just, if I could say, laziness. You know, in 1996, it seemed to us that a lot of reporters didn't necessarily read the Personal Responsibility Act because the preamble begins, marriage is the foundation of a successful society. You know, so it could have been obvious that this was going to be about behavior modification. But then again, it was journalists and writers like Michael Harrington who have brought hunger to the foreground as a U.S. issue at a time when it wasn't seen that way. Any thoughts in general about the role of the press in the past or going forward on this set of issues? I think it's been far too easy for some in the press to just sort of repeat this sort of lazy narratives about poor people being poor because it's their own fault. Poverty in America has some strong structural roots that, in fact, some people profit from. And I think we don't really look closely at the complicated lives of poor people. That would be my one thing I would like to see. Now, obviously, there's a fair number of people, Wall Street Journal being one of them, where their view of poor people is sort of undifferentiated, massive, and sort of not very morally strong people who basically should be out there working more. Yeah, most SNAP families have somebody who's working. They just don't make enough money. Um, so I think there's a real consideration in, in what we might call the mainstream media to sort of look more closely at these dynamics and not take these sort of facile arguments about poor people not wanting to work at face value. We've been speaking with Christopher Basso from Northeastern University. Why SNAP Works is out now from the University of California Press. Thanks, Christopher Basso, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Well, thank you for having me. You may know some details from the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire of 1911. As Lola Fadulu reminded in the New York Times, there were no sprinklers, no fire drills. Workers on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors, while everybody knew that fire department ladders only reached the 6th floor, a poorly constructed fire escape that collapsed, and an exit door locked because while not every report notes it, Owners wanted to prevent workers sneaking off to take breaks and union organizers sneaking in. A memorial has just been unveiled here in Manhattan for the mostly immigrant young women who died that day. 
The former Triangle Factory is now a part of New York University. It's worth noting that dozens of NYU students went directly from the unveiling to a protest at the school's bookstore, demanding that they cut ties with Nike, which, along with its history, faces current charges of stiffing workers at factories closed during the pandemic. Here's that 2015 interview with veteran worker advocate Barbara Briggs. Officials in Bangladesh have filed murder charges against some of the people involved in the 2013 collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory that killed more than 1,100 mostly women workers and injured thousands of others under circumstances almost too cruel to fathom. It doesn't require speaking for the deceased to imagine that they would hope not only for justice for themselves, but for whatever actions are necessary to prevent such a disaster happening to others. Are we seeing some of those actions? Are real lessons being learned from what's been called the garment industry's deadliest disaster? Joining us now to discuss these issues is Barbara Briggs, Associate Director of the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights, where I will note I am a board member. Welcome to Counterspin, Barbara Briggs. Good afternoon. Well, we often hear the sweeping term conditions, the conditions in these factories. The charges here reflect different aspects of those conditions. There is the violation of safety rules. Additional floors had been added to a building in a way that wasn't structurally sound. But the Bangladeshi police report calls what happened on April 24th in 2013 a mass killing. And that's because of actions that go beyond having workers in unsafe buildings. Can you remind us of what actually happened on that day? The history of what happened with Rana Plaza uh, and, you know, ending in the tragedy of April 24th really was a crime from beginning to end. I mean, as you said, there was too much sand in the concrete. There was poor quality steel used in the rebar. The building had been built up an extra three floors over its permitted five floors, and it was built as a commercial building, not an industrial building. And the weight of the heavy machinery and generators of the apparel factories on the upper floors was a much heavier load than the building was even designed for. So on April 22nd, big visible cracks appeared in the building, and the building was evacuated. An inspector was called in and declared the building dangerous. The bank and the commercial businesses on the first floor of Rana Plaza remained closed. But on April 24th, the workers gathered and they came to the factory, not to go in, but to find out when the repairs would be done, when they could expect to go back to work, and also when they would be paid for the almost month that they had worked. The response of the owners of the five factories in the Rana Plaza building was that they ordered the workers to go back to work immediately and said that if they didn't, they wouldn't be paid for the month. They had shipment deadlines. They had to get the product out. For these workers, if you're not paid for a month's work, you're not able to feed your families. Garment workers in Bangladesh at that point were making as little as 18 cents an hour. $38.65 a month, they really literally live from hand to mouth, and they still do. 
For the workers who still refuse to go back into the factory, the owner of the building, Sohel Rana, who is also a local strongman, called in thugs with sticks and threatened that they would break the bones of anybody who didn't go into the building immediately. So at 8 a.m., all the workers went in to work. At 8.45, the electricity went out, which is not unusual in Bangladesh, and simultaneously, the five factories, five big generators kicked on. Within minutes, the building began to rock and sway, and it went down with virtually all of the workers inside. The lesson that I take from this, for us, an absolute certainty, is that if the workers in the Rana Plaza building had had a union to represent them, this tragedy would have played out very differently. I mean, the workers knew the building was dangerous. There were huge cracks you could see from the outside to the inside. But alone and without the ability to come together, speak as a group, and be represented, they became victims. What happened in subsequent months, first of all, there were dozens of U.S. and Canadian and European companies producing in those factories. Joe Fresh, Walmart, Gap, and virtually every major U.S. apparel company and European apparel company does produce in Bangladesh, somewhere in Bangladesh, because labor is so cheap. I think what's happened, what happened on that day is that the international brands have realized that tragedies like Rana Plaza, which killed over 1,100 workers, you know, fires like the Tazreen factory, which killed 112 behind locked factory gates just a few months before. These kind of accidents are just too great a reputational risk, and the companies do not want their products associated with workers who are burned and who are crushed to death. And so there really have been ongoing systematic efforts and a fair amount of money but an international coordination to see that these factories are inspected and to assure that they're at least basically safe. You know, they're demanding and in some cases financing the installation of fire exits, sprinkler systems, fire extinguishers, and emergency trainings. But I've got to say that other kinds of abuses continue. It sounds as though some, at least, of the transnationals involved have made some pledges and have followed through on those in terms of some infrastructural improvements. But what needs to happen that hasn't happened? The direct contract factories really are beginning to get some of the safety requirements that they're having. I mean, there's training. They're trying not to lock the gates anymore. There are basic sprinkler systems and fire extinguishers and that sort of thing, fire escapes. What we're seeing, though, is that there still are considerable abuses. And we've always known that inside even the best facilities, worker treatment is not always good and the law is not always respected. So in factory after factory after factory, some of them producing, you know, for Brands with really good and progressive reputations, we see extraordinarily, extraordinary amounts of forced overtime. We see, you know, women, when they get pregnant, uh, pressured and harassed into quitting so that they don't have to pay their maternity leave. We see workers screamed at and verbally abused. Uh, and really pretty much across the board, we see that the workers still do not have their right to organize, to form an independent union, and to bargain collectively. 
And, I mean, we know that workers are the best monitors of conditions and the best guarantors of their own safety when they're organized and have an independent voice. So this is a really big flaw, including for the ongoing safety of of these plants. Well, in the changes that have come about, what have been some of the driving factors? It hasn't all been you know, kind of noblesse oblige on the part of the companies. There also is organizing going on on the ground to try to build up the workers' voices, they're not. Yes, although the unions are in a real one-down position. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, there are too many of them, and they're not unified. However, there are very committed organizations that are trying to help the workers. It's not shop floor organizing. It's labor unions and federations on the street, uh, helping the workers learn their rights, helping them begin to advocate for themselves, and helping them out, you know, going to the labor ministry, making complaints and that kind of thing. Not all is hopeless, and with international pressure, it's possible to push change. And the Institute and our partners in Bangladesh have actually experienced a string of victories in the last year or so. Starting with exposing abusive conditions at the Hamim Group, a factory called Next Collections, producing, actually it was for, for The Gap a couple of years ago, we've moved on to several factory groups where we've been able to clean up conditions. Our estimate is that at this point, over 70,000 workers are in a better state now, mm-hmm. meaning that instead of working until 10 or 11 or till midnight or sometimes until 5 in the morning and working seven days a week, their hours have been cut back and the overtime that they work is voluntary. It's paid correctly. There's been an end to, you know, the double sets of books where the workers get pay stubs that are meant for the monitors to see but have no reflection in reality. Instead, what's on their pay stub are the hours that they actually worked, and they're being paid correctly for the hours that they work. Women who are pregnant are treated with respect and are given their legal paid maternity leave, which in Bangladesh is they're supposed to be paid eight weeks before the expected birth and then eight weeks after. It's a matter of life and death for the woman and her infant and family because when you're paid, at this point, the lowest wage is 33 cents an hour and the highest for a garment sewing operator is about 44 cents an hour. When you're paid that little, you can't save money to take that kind of time off. These are big differences in the lives of workers, and it really is international visibility and pressure that can drive these changes. That was Barbara Briggs speaking with Counterspin in 2015. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.